evening, we're going to have a reading of God's will for our lives. It's going to be in Romans chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. It's going to be reading the first seven verses of Romans 6. In Romans 6, verse 1, Paul's writing, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. In our prayer for confession this evening, let's go before the Lord. Father, we admit, even by all of the goodness and by all of the grace that you have given us, being dead to sin, Lord, that the power of sin has been broken, but that presence of sin still remains. And it's that presence of sin, Lord, that we are going to be in battle with from this point on until the day we meet you face to face. So we confess, Lord, that this battle, this struggle, there are times when we do not trust you. There are times when we do not take you at your word. That we act alone. We act independently. We trust our own instincts rather than what the scriptures have to teach us. Lord, we confess we fall short. But in spite of falling short, Lord, your grace supersedes any amount of sin that we could bring forth because of Christ's blood shed on the cross. Because of Christ's blood, Lord, there's an infinite amount of grace to be found there. And Lord, that we give thanks and praise to you daily for this, for redeeming us, for purchasing us by your blood, that we could be restored back into this fellowship, Lord, reconciliation with you that was brought in by the first Adam, being redeemed by the second Adam. We thank you, Father, for this. But we confess we still fall short. And in these areas that we fall short, Lord, we just pray for more illumination by the Holy Spirit, more insight into your word, more of an awareness of our sin, more of an awareness of our sin, Lord, by during the times where we think we're doing good, underneath those motives, underneath those lies even more sin and more sin and more sin. Lord, let us not become legalistic. Let us, Lord, not become over-paranoid with our sin, but take it on realistically. Knowing, Lord, that every time we sin, it breaches our relationship with you. So we confess our sins this evening. We want to be restored. We want to be in perfect unity and fellowship with you. And we thank you for hearing our prayer this evening. In your son's name, amen. Our second hymn of the evening, 276, Please Stand. Jesus paid it all, 276.
seated. At this time, we'll be taking up the offering for the Biblical Counseling Center. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the many blessings you've given us. We thank you for this glorious Sunday. A Sunday we are called to worship you, and we thank you for the, the freedom, the transportation, the physical ability to all assemble today and worship your name. We also thank you for the Bibling Counseling Center. We pray that you'll work with them, that they will grow, that they will continue to spread the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ and comfort those who need comfort. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our scripture reading for this evening. We turn to the book of Deuteronomy 29. It's going to be one verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is going to be the third part of the series of understanding God's will. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it reads, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That concludes the reading. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you that though it will be Ben's voice, we want to believe it's your words of wisdom. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So the third part this evening, guidance according to God's will. So the context and the background of the first two sermons, just to summarize them up real quick. The first one was understanding the difference between the moral will and the sovereign will of God. God has one will. 
but it's broken down into two aspects in Scripture. The moral will, what God commands, how he wants us to live, and his sovereign will or his secret will, the things that he has ordained from eternity that have yet to come to pass that he has not yet revealed to himself. These are things that God put into place before the foundation of the world. He's shown us this much, but there's this much more to go. But we have a perspective of God's moral will, which is right here. And the sufficiency for understanding God's moral will is Scripture. We do not want to go outside or out of the bounds of Scripture. Last time we talked about the mystical ways Christians try to peek beyond God's moral will into his secret will, like um, signs, putting out a fleece, hearing God speak to you, these kinds of things that are extra biblical that we kind of incorporate in as Christian. We understand we don't go all the way to the side of the occult into fortune telling. We understand not to go that far, but there's a certain line where Christians can kind of get caught up in these mystical experiences that aren't biblical, that don't have a biblical base. So this evening, what we're going to be taking a look at now is guidance according to God's will. So by way of introduction, there was a, it was about 20 years ago now, I don't know how many people in here have been salmon fishing on Lake Michigan, but normally when I would go fishing in the lakes in Wisconsin, I'd just either bob or fish or, or um, with a Rapala. I don't even know what it's called, casting. But um, it's quite different on Lake Michigan. You have a bigger boat and you have all of these places where you set up lines that go 100 feet deep, 50 feet deep. I mean, the whole perspective, you're trying to get as much area behind you as possible to cover to catch the salmon because it's such a large lake. And in this study of understanding God's will, there are so many internal and external areas where we can overstep the boundary of what Scripture gives us. And that's kind of what we want to do is kind of flush these areas up, cover as much ground as we possibly can externally and internally, seeing these errors that we develop, catching these things that we just all of a sudden start using on a regular basis, thinking within our minds that this is the way God works. But when we compare it to Scripture, we see that it doesn't align up. And to understand God's will, we want to make sure that we are in perfect alignment with Scripture. Now transitioning here, whether it be marriage, finding a job, quitting a job, starting a business, we all face different circumstances in life. And as Christians, we want to know, Lord, is this your will for me? Is your will for me to do this? Is your will for me to do that? We've all been in these types of scenarios before. Where, what does God want me to do? An open door comes, an opportunity arises. Lord, what is your will in this? So when we're facing these decisions, how do we know God's will? How can we know for sure? If we can know, how do we get there? So the first point this evening, guidance through the Holy Spirit. Now, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we understand we have him indwelling in us the moment we believe. But there's a problem that arises with Christians in the sense that we mistake our own emotions for the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And the truth of the matter is, nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach that the Holy Spirit or ever refer to the Holy Spirit as being a feeling. It is far too easy to deceive ourselves with our own subjective feelings and thinking, okay, this must be from God because it's the way I feel. We mistake this for the guidance of the Spirit. Now we have this promise in Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Bible does teach we are led by the Spirit. 
But the leading of the Spirit is not some mystical encounter. It's not as if we just let go of ourselves and God just takes over our body and does what he wants with us. That's not how it works. Now the question is, is how do we know we're being led by the Spirit? What is a Spirit-filled life? How do we know this for sure? And the answer, we know we're in a Spirit-filled life when we're walking according to the Spirit. Meaning, living a a lifestyle that is objectively grounded in Scripture, in God's moral will. Because we have put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we have put on the life of the Spirit. So being Spirit-filled is not this overflowing emotional sensation. Being Spirit-filled is being disciplined and obedient and having our wills conformed to God's moral will. That's how you know you're being led by the Spirit. You may not have any emotion behind it whatsoever, but that is a Spirit-filled life. One of the benefits we have in Christianity is we're indwelled by God's Spirit. That's why the Bible refers to him as the paraclete or the comforter. And in John 16, 7, Jesus says, this is the upper room discourse the night before the crucifixion. He's talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit who's going to come because Jesus is going to ascend to his Father shortly. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And this is what he says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's referring to the Comforter or the Mediator or the Intercessor, the Helper, referring to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We do not have Christ physically with us today, but we have the Holy Spirit indwelling permanently with us right now if we are true believers in Christ. It was necessary for Jesus to ascend into heaven because Jesus ascending into heaven now gives us the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Also in John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever. So God indwells you, his body, his spirit. If you remember in the Old Testament, God indwelling the tab- um, Solomon's temple. Now we're seeing the same thing, the Holy Spirit indwelling our bodies, inside us. Now think about the blessings that we as Christians have because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. It's not simply abstract. It's not theoretical. It's practical and it's moment by moment. He gives us the word to guide us through the Spirit. And in verse 26, Jesus says again, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is our companion. We're never alone in our Christian walk. He, we always have him. He resides within us. He intercedes for us on our behalf. If we don't have the words to say when we're praying, the Holy Spirit is there. He illuminates us. He gives us the passion and the desire to read and study Scripture. He gives us the ability to defeat sin and live a life of righteousness. All of this is going on inside of the believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. He reveals Christ to us. Now, the reason why we grow in Scripture and the reason why we grow in our sanctification is because of this relationship with the Holy Spirit. He leads us towards God's direction. He produces fruit in us, gives us the characteristics, the qualities, the abilities, and the gifts to articulate the gospel to other people. All of this together is at our disposal. 
in understanding and living according to God's moral will. There is no crystal ball. There are no Christian mystic experiences. Rather, his indwelling presence is what guides us. And the key to understanding this evening's sermon is this. Instead of God giving us absolute knowledge about the future, absolute knowledge about what's going to happen tomorrow, instead of doing that, he has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us in a relational manner day by day. So the secret things of God that we do not know, whenever we approach those on a daily basis, whatever's coming our way, we already have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We already have everything. We're already sufficient. We have the word. There isn't anything that's going to be able to overtake us because we are having the relationship with the Lord on a moment-by-moment basis to grow in knowledge in him, to trust in him, and to trust in him over our own instincts and our own abilities. So the question now comes up, how do we differentiate the difference between the Holy Spirit and our feelings, our emotions, our intuitions, our hunches? Sometimes, and maybe you can remember in the past, you thought this was what God wanted, you felt it, but then when it came to fruition, that wasn't what the Lord wanted. We can mistake our emotions for the Holy Spirit. Can we ever trust our feelings? Are they a valid source of guidance? So point two this evening is understanding our feelings and emotions. Important to understand, feelings can be dangerous. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. They can't always be trusted. Proverbs 28, 26 says this. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Many of you may have heard this quote already from Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. That's from a play from Hamlet. To thine own self be true. There's a lot of pride in that statement. There's a lot of self-reliance in that statement. There's a problem though. Have you ever been wrong in the past? Has your judgment ever failed you? Do you realize that no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you read, no matter how much you learn, there's still almost an infinite amount of knowledge that you do not know compared to what you do know. Most people will agree with what I just said. They'll say, yes, you're right. But most people will also put their trusts in their own self, in their own reasoning abilities over others and over God, and over Scripture. One of the results of falling and being a fallen creation in Adam is the sin of pride is to think you're smarter than most people you encounter. Maybe not academically. You may not have a higher IQ than somebody else. But when it comes down to the important things in life, the practical matters in life, deep down inside of us, we have this tendency to think that we're smarter than most people that my reasoning and my logic and my ability to work with my hands and my ability to, to organize and to do things is at a higher level than most people and I can trust generally in myself and what I do. To ask for advice or to ask for help is weak. Makes you look bad. Plus, what's somebody else going to tell me that I already don't know? We develop these type of thinking patterns. The Bible says that this is foolish thinking. Again, Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So the question is, how do you walk in wisdom? What is that? Proverbs also answers this for us. Chapter 9, verse 10. 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is this fear of the Lord? Yes, it's being afraid of God. Yes, it's understanding and being gripped in terror and fear. But it's also veneration. It's also honor. It's also awe as we approach him. That God is so awesome, that he's so marvelous, that he's so loving, that he's so kind, that he's all of these things. Then rather than being afraid or repulsed, we actually want to embrace him for his beauty and for his love. It is a fear that leads us not to run away from him, but to run to him. It's acknowledging that I am sinful, I am frail, I am limited, I am finite, and I rarely have the right answer, but God always does. Rather than trusting in our gut instincts, we turn to what God says in his word. Rather than trusting in our intuition and our feelings that seem right to us, we have a concrete base in scripture. And when we don't know what to do in a certain situation, we're not to look into our hearts and assume that this emotional feeling that I have is from God. We have to be careful not to mistake our sinful desires and our sinful motives for the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Our emotions have a huge influence on how we reason and how we think. Think of this. David, when he, was standing, when he saw Bathsheba bathing, what were his emotions during that time? Saul, when the battle was going on with Goliath, when he was the king, he was supposed to take on Goliath. He didn't. What was Saul's emotions during that time? When Jesus confronted Peter and said, you'll deny me three times, what were Peter's emotions in his response to Christ? See, their emotions led them into their false thinking. Their emotions were not promptings of the Holy Spirit. They trusted their own instincts. They trusted their own desires of the flesh. Now, when Jesus was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane before going to the cross, how did he feel? Luke records this for us in 2242 of his gospel. Father, if you are, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I mean, this is agony that I don't think any other human being would be able to endure. And this is what Jesus was feeling at the time. But how did he respond? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He feared God, and he went to the cross because he understood this was God's will for him. He trusted in what God said and what God had planned, and not in his own emotions or in his own feelings. So when we feel uncomfortable or when we start feeling uneasy, and we get these senses that something's wrong, Rather than automatically assuming that this is the Holy Spirit leading us, we should be asking ourselves, why am I lacking peace at this moment? Why am I doubting God? Why has this fear come over me? What is making me feel this way? And generally, nine times out of ten, what it is, it's a sinful desire in our heart that has been made manifest, that has come out. And we're thinking it's from the Lord when it's not. So generally, when we start to feel uneasy or doubt or start to get a little bit skittish, we should be looking at our own sinful nature and thinking, okay, where am I going wrong? Where am I off track? Lord, am I in track with you? Because generally, all it takes is a couple hours away from Scripture, a couple hours away from prayer. Maybe you had a bad day at work. Maybe you've been going through some trials in life, and we just slowly get off track and start going in a different direction. And when that starts to happen, we start to get uneasy. And we start to think, Lord, what, what is going on here? 
Generally, it has to do with the sin in our heart. We have to be questioning these motives. Why am I feeling this way? What was David's motive for his sin with Bathsheba? It was lust. It wasn't the Lord bringing them together. What was Saul's problem with Goliath? It was fear. He didn't want to fight him. What was Peter's problem with what Jesus had to say? It was pride because Jesus says he was going to deny him three times. Peter's like, no way. His pride got in the way. So each one of these emotional responses had sin within them, and they did not recognize this. Another reason we may be lacking peace and having these uncomfortable emotions is because we either by nature or we're too cautious or we're too anxious. If so, it's not the Lord causing us to feel this way. The Holy Spirit is not prompting you here. Rather, it's a part of our own sinful way of thinking. An example, have you ever had buyer's remorse? Something you wanted to buy. You walked away from it at first, but it stayed in your head. And you're starting to think, boy, God really wants me to have that. I know it's a little expensive, but just think of all the things I could do for the Lord if I had that. You end up going back, you end up spending too much money, and now it sits on the shelf. You've never done nothing with it. Was that the Lord prompting you to buy that product? No. It was our own desire to do so. Indecisiveness is another one. If I do this, then God this. If I do that, then God will be made here. We're never planted. We're never grounded. We're always worried that we're going to make a mistake or that a mistake in our past has been made. And we can never really seem to get ourselves on a straight path because we're always so over anxious. This is not the Holy Spirit working. This is the sinful nature of our heart lacking faith in the Word of God, lacking the trust, feeling guilty. I should have done this. I should have done that. We mistakenly think God is causing us to feel this way. We interpret this as the Holy Spirit laying a guilt trip on us when the truth is we're just simply failing to recognize our lack of faith. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. So walking in the fear of the Lord is walking in this wisdom. It is to base all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions on what he has said in his word. And then to be guided by the Holy Spirit, not by our emotions. So what are the, some of the ways that make us feel like the Lord is at work when he may not be? Have we ever come across open doors, meaning opportunities in life? If you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 12 and 13. I can remember there was a time in my life where any time an opportunity or an open door would come, I would run through it thinking, well, the opportunity is here. God's giving me this. And I would foolishly run into it. And how many times over and over again I would fall and I would stumble here thinking that, okay, God has place something right in front of me. It has to be from him. And I'd go at it with all my might. And a couple weeks later, I'd realize that's not where God wanted me to be. We can make this mistake in life with opportunities. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. One would normally think God opens a door. Well, obviously, there's an opportunity. It's the Lord. Go through it. Do it. It may seem like Paul had made a mistake here. But the opening of the door does not necessarily mean that this is God's will for you to go through it. 
Paul wasn't anxious. He wasn't overly ambitious. He was cautious. He used wisdom. His spirit was not at rest. Why? Because he tells us he did not find Titus there. He didn't act irrational. No knee-jerk decisions. Nothing over-emotional. But used careful, thoughtful, prayerful wisdom in his circumstance. But always made sure that he was doing the best for the church of Corinth. And always made sure he was doing the best for the glory of God. Keeping his heart in check. Now, some doors that open up to us may even violate God's will. If you remember Jonah in chapter 1, Jonah got up to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. And guess what? He found a ship going to Joppa. There's an opportunity, and he got on it. We know that wasn't God's will. He was breaking God's moral will at that point. Even though an opportunity came to Jonah to get out, and he took it, that's not where God wanted him to be. So he acted sinfully. Just because an open door comes up doesn't automatically mean we get ambitious and run through it. It may not be from the Lord. Now, what about the flip side? What about doors that close? Does that mean that God was not in it? Just because things don't go as planned. As an example, if you took a new job and six weeks later you get laid off or you've had a business for two years and you have to close the door. Just because these things happen does not automatically mean that God is not in it. We tend to have a pragmatic view of God's will. Meaning if things are going well, it has to be from the Lord. If things are going rough, this can't be from the Lord. If we're putting money into the bank, if we're making a profit, this has to be from God. If we're losing money, this can't be from God. We, we end up creating our own prosperity gospel here by the results of what has happened. It may be that the Lord did want you to take that job. And it may be that six months down the line, he wanted you to get laid off because he's putting you through a trial to grow and to mature you. Or it could be that he's closing a door because he's opening up another one over here. Where had he not closed this door, you wouldn't have been over here for this open door. So how God's sovereign secret will works, we don't know. But what we do know is we can't automatically assume just because things are going well, it's from the Lord, and things are not, it's bad. We can't go by that logic. It's not scriptural. We think if we have to close the doors to the business, it means God was not in it. We create our own prosperity gospel. Either way, just because a door opens does not mean it's from the Lord. So how do we tie all of this together? <clears throat> we can know and study God's will. We can know and study his moral will. God's secret will is left up to him. When facing a difficult decision in life, when we need strong guidance on what we're supposed to do, how do we go about conducting ourselves correctly? And here's the third point. Putting the will of God to practice. Walking in wisdom. We know we're walking in wisdom according to the Holy Spirit when we have put off the deeds of the flesh and we put on the works of the Spirit. We know we're on track. As we walk in the Spirit, as we're walking in wisdom, the Bible says we are allowed to make plans and decisions, but the Lord still controls the outcome. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We are to base these plans and decisions upon the word of God and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. 
We are to know and understand the moral will and apply it to every area of our lives. And when we're doing this and when we're making the decisions, the Lord is right there with us, guiding us along that path. Now, this is the difficulty that comes. And I'm sure many people in here have experienced this. We will not always receive clear guidance on every decision we are to make. There are times when it's crystal clear to make a decision and we do it. But there are other times where it's going to be like, boy, I just don't have a whole lot to go off of here. This is because there's times where God is taking off the training wheels. God is taking us into a deeper trial, into a deeper relationship in trusting him and his guidance. This is why Paul commands us to walk by faith and not by sight or by our own reasoning. To trust in God's persevering and governance rather than to trust in our own abilities. Many decisions are clear from Scripture. Others are not. But in the end, if we're walking in the Spirit and we're trusting in in the guidance of the Lord, we're free to make these choices. Remember Proverbs 16.9, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. But this freedom has to be grounded. This freedom has to be based upon walking in the Spirit and putting off the deeds of our flesh because our hearts are deceitful. So questions, if you've ever contemplated these. Am I ever called to full-time ministry? Am I ever called to mission work? How do I divide my time between church, family, and work? Should I start to look for another job? How do I care for my aging parents? What do I do with a teenage son or daughter who's struggling? All of these, and, and rightfully so, we're turning to the Lord in these scenarios for his wisdom. When facing decisions like this, we are to do just that, to pray for wisdom to make the correct decision. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The first thing we need to do is to be honest with ourselves, to recognize that we don't have the answer, to humble ourselves, and to realize that we fall so short of what God has required for us. That's the first step. And in doing so, putting off the deeds of the flesh with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we walk in the Spirit and seek God for wisdom. A lot of us think that if we just pray to God, he's going to zap us with the wisdom and it's just going to be downloaded into our minds and we're just going to have it. That's not how God works. He doesn't work that way. It's just not an automatic download into our brain. Rather, it's walking in wisdom, walking in fellowship, and asking for the wisdom to make the right decisions. It's not mystical. It's devotional. We ask, we seek, we knock, we dig deep. Don't expect the mystical answer in prayer. Rather, God gives us the wisdom to make the correct decision. Weigh your responsibilities according to the principles of God's word. We have the freedom in our decision-making process. We have a concrete list before us in Scripture that guides us. To search the Scriptures, to find the principles for the wisdom. To weigh the pros and cons of a scenario, biblically. To keep our relationship strong with the Lord and our relationship strong with the family. To seek out good Christian counsel from elders, from deacons, for other people in the congregation who have gone through similar struggles. What is your past experience? These things are valuable. Think about these things. What is your past experience? What do you enjoy to do? What don't you enjoy to do? 
What brings most glory to God? Are you motivated by a world that's lost and you want the gospel to go to them? Or is the desire to satisfy your own goal, your own ambition, or to simply build up your bank account? Once we start to weigh these things in the wisdom of the word, the Holy Spirit guides us to make the correct decisions. All of these questions are valid and important to ask in every decision in life. Now, recently, I can use a kind of a personal example because I said before I've made many mistakes in this area in the past. My wife had a, a job opportunity to take with a different company, and they had good benefits, and there was a lot of good things involved with it. So the first thing we, we took a look at was, okay, the vertical relationship with the Lord. Is this type of a job going to create such... Um, an attitude? Is it going to create her to get bitter with because of all of the um, phone calls coming in? So we made sure that the relationship with the Lord was going to be strong. We made sure that our relationship with one another was not going to get broken up by the job. We weighed the pros and cons, location, pay, benefits, experience, um, promotional possible, all, all of the things that come with the job, we weighed them. That's not a sin to do. We prayed on it overnight. We reviewed it all over again the next day, praying for wisdom. We didn't make a quick knee-jerk reaction. We did this continually over time until we felt we were led by the Lord to make a certain decision. See, these are things that you don't want to go through by yourself. Your spouse, brother, wife, sister, elder, there are a lot of people in a congregation to work these things out with. It's always good to have somebody else to do this because if you're not thinking correctly or if your thinking is a little bit off, Somebody with godly wisdom can show that to you that you might not even be able to see on your own. Remember, our hearts are deceitful in these areas. We tend to lean towards our sin rather than lead towards what God has for us. So in understanding God's will, Paul gives us an example of this freedom to make choices. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So think about this. The husband dies. She has a free, the freedom now to choose another husband. So it's not that God just zaps you and all of a sudden you're there or downloads the information to your mind. He uses these trials in our lives to grow us deeper into the word to expose our sin and to root it out of us and to follow closer to him by faith and not by our reasoning processes. There are no private voice messages from God. There's no need to live in fear about what's going to happen tomorrow. And there's no need to get frustrated because God has not revealed to us his entire secret will. Rather, it's a moment-by-moment relationship walk with the indwelling Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, the three key points from these three studies that we've done these three sermons. Understanding the two aspects of the one will of God, the moral and the secret. Understanding how the Holy Spirit works today as to oppose to the times of the apostles. Remember, the Holy Spirit spoke more to the apostles through dreams and through visions. Now that we have the completed canon of Scripture, God speaks solely through his word. The time of the apostles and prophets has ceased. Those gifts have ceased. It's just his word through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And third, Understand God does not simply zap you with the knowledge and the wisdom. But this wisdom is required through much sacrifice, through much digging, and through much prayer, and through much godly counsel with other Christian believers. Let's pray.
Lord, this is a difficult concept, concept to grasp at times. Lord, what you want us to do. Lord, we thank you for creating within us that desire to follow you. Lord, until all things aside that are contrary to your moral will, Lord, let us grow in your word, grow in fellowship of the Holy Spirit, grow in the grace and knowledge, and to put our trust in you through godly wisdom, through godly decisions, Lord, to utilize our elders and our deacons and our other brothers and sisters at church who have gone through similar circumstances and scenarios in the past. Lord, to check ourselves at your door, Lord, to be confessing and admitting that we lack the ability to live a godly lifestyle outside of faith and outside of your word and Holy Spirit. So we thank you for giving us what you have. Give us the courage to face whatever comes tomorrow, knowing that we have your indwelling presence within us. In your son's name, amen.